0: And so if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to John chapter 11. And we're working our way through uh, the book of John. 37 weeks we're taking to do this journey. We're in week 21 or 22 right now. And uh, if you're just joining us, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. It is my privilege to open up God's Word with you this morning. Uh, Kind of over the Bible and, and a verse that often gets Quoted, but I don't think maybe is always understood, or certainly not understood to the depth and level that we should. Uh, but this passage will speak to that. Is Romans eight twenty eight, and in the ESV it goes like this: "And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purposes." Now it's my prayer personally for myself and pastorally for you, that that the truth of Romans 8.28 wouldn't just be a a verse to throw out whenever uh, it's convenient, but that that truth that permeates the Bible, that all things work together for good for those that love God would sink deep into our soul. Now, Paul says it in Romans in that way, but in this passage, uh, we're going to see it played out through story, through a life uh, through, through the life of Christ and encounter uh, John chapter 11. I'll just say this also. John chapter 11 has just uh, a deep, deep significance for me and my family. Um, I, I shared with you uh, over the last few weeks that uh, when my mom was dying of ALS and, and getting weaker and weaker and weaker, we knew the time was coming and it was getting closer. Uh, about six months before that, I, I, we were... We were in Okinawa, doing ministry there, and, and some really good friends of ours invited us, invited me to come uh, preach at, at their service uh, across the island. And uh, Mike and Lisa were great friends. We we kind of launched them out of ministry, out of our church, and and so it was just a privilege. And I, I was scheduled to go preach Ephesians chapter two, and, and I went there. And, and as I got there and um, said hi to my friends, they just said, "Hey, Mark, we, we just need to let you know uh, tonight." Uh, earlier today, I saw, Lisa said, I saw the doctor and um, my body's full of tumors. And I said, Oh, Lisa, I'm so sorry. So I preached the gospel and I felt like I, I was just reminding her of what was true and what was right. And, and as I went up there, I, I decided to bring a friend of mine with me, one of the other elders from our church, and, and his name was Drew. And I said, Drew, come up there. Let's, let's minister to these Marines up here. And uh, he's like, okay, we'll do that. And, and so he sat in there and, and heard that news and heard the gospel and, uh, once again. And then uh, uh, they, they shipped Lisa and her husband back to New Mexico so she could get treatment. And a couple days after that, Drew, who I took up there, came to me. and said, Mark, I went to the doctor today. I have an aggressive form of cancer that is spreading throughout my body, and they're sending me back to California tomorrow to get treatment. I said, Drew, I'm so sorry. We'll fast forward a few more months as my mom continues to go down, and the end is drawing near. And it, it seems quite evident. Uh, she began to. We would have FaceTime FaceTime calls, and uh, we'd talk to her. And um, her her faith was growing as her body was getting weaker. And, and even so, she wrestled with with questions. She wrestled with doubt. She wrestled with depression. Uh, and um, I could, she could go very very quickly into a very deep dark hole. And so one day I was talking with her on FaceTime, and I saw her going there. And so I I was just trying to bring her out of that, and I just said, Mom, tell me what you think about when you think about going to heaven. And she says, well, uh, oh, that's easy. Her her eyes brighten up, and she comes out of that deep, dark hole, and she says, I think about running with Jesus. She had been in a wheelchair for those for about two years at this point, and I was like, really? Really? So that's neat. Is there, I mean, of all the cool things in heaven, is there anything else that you think about? She's like, no, I, I don't know what it is. That's just what comes into my mind when I think about when I cross over from this life to the next, running with Jesus. And then she said, Mark, would you, would you be willing to speak at my funeral? And I said, of course, Mom. Be, it would be my honor to do so. And fast forward to January 22nd, 2013, I get the call, I'm sitting in the legal office or the legal office parking lot on base, and my sister says, mom has passed, and and so uh, it's time to go, and I I get my ticket, and as I'm flying over the ocean uh, by myself, just thinking, what in the world am I going to say? And I had been preaching, and we were wrapping up our time in Okinawa, and I had been preaching through the Gospel of John, and, and I was scheduled that week to preach John chapter 11. And so I just began on the plane to, to read through John chapter 11, and um, I just said, This is what, this is what I'm going to preach is what I'm going to preach. And so uh, I I did that. And then fast forward about nine months later, uh, I hear that my friend Lisa's not doing well down in New Mexico. And so me and my family drive down to Albuquerque and we go visit her. And I remember walking into her her house and, and seeing her strapped to the oxygen machine and her turning to me. And the first thing she says to me is, I'm ready to go home. I said, yeah, I bet you are, Lisa. And she showed me those tumors had grown. You could actually see them all over her body. As we were walking out the door, her husband, Mike, came to me and said, Mark, w- would you be willing to do her funeral? It's going to be soon, obviously. I said, absolutely. And about a week later, we're driving back down to Albuquerque, and I come back to John chapter 11. Fast forward nine months more, we're, we're in Europe now, and my friend Drew, uh, his cancer had gone into remission, but now it had come back fiercely, and, and he he calls me up on FaceTime, and the first thing he says to me is, I'm ready for my graduation. I said, I bet you are. And he says, Mark, I, I know this is a kind of a crazy request, but when I die, would you mind flying to do my funeral? I said, I'd be honored to. I'm flying over the ocean again. I come back to John chapter 11. And so that, that's just a little bit of a story of why this passage means so much to me. And my heart w- would be that it, uh, you would see the depth of the majesty and the glory of Jesus in this passage. You would see the parallels. You would see, even in your own life, maybe your, your past or certainly your future, a, a time of pain and suffering and, and a time certainly of questions and, and wondering why would a good God allow this in your life and all those things, I think this passage begins to speak to that. And my prayer is that we would be a people that have a deep-rooted faith, that know that for those that love God and are called according to His purposes, all things work together for good. So if you will, turn with me to John chapter 11. I'll, I'll begin to work our way through it. It's a, it's a rich passage, a deep passage. I'm not going to be able to cover all of it. would hope that you would dig into it some more this week, but um, let me pray for us as we turn our eyes to the Word. Father, we come to you now, Lord, needing to hear from you once again, needing to hear good news even as we've been reminded of what's true already through the catechism, that we've all rebelled in thought, word, and deed, and because you are holy and you are just and you are righteous, your wrath will be poured out on that. God, I pray that we would be able to see gospel in this, good news that our affections would be stirred for Jesus, our minds would be renewed, and that you would do a mighty work in our lives. Prepare us, uh, make that truth uh, that you are working all things for your glory and our good, drive deep into our hearts now through your word and by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. John chapter 11, we'll start in verse 1. It says, now, a certain man was ill. "'Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. "'It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment "'and wiped his feet with her hair, "'whose brother Lazarus was ill.' So a couple things we know already in this passage is that uh, this family is, is close to Jesus. Uh, they have a relationship with Jesus. This is that They've seen Jesus. They've seen Jesus turn water into wine. They've seen Jesus heal people that could not walk and, and make them walk. They've seen Jesus, just by a word, uh, heal a boy 20 miles away. And they've seen Jesus uh, give sight to a blind man. And so they know Jesus. They love Jesus. They, they have a relationship and a history with Jesus. And we're told that one of them, Lazarus, is ill. But we're not told what the sickness is. Um, We're just told, we know from the context and otherwise that it is serious. It is deadly serious. It is a time that doesn't have our modern medical advances. There is no morphine drip. There's none of that. It is high fevers. It is writhing. It is vomiting. It is, uh, the situation is getting desperate. And Mary and Martha, the sisters, see their brother going down faster and faster. He's bad sick. And they, they know that the only person, the only one that can intervene in this moment is Jesus. They've seen him do it before. And so in their desperation, as they see uh, their brother get worse and worse and worse, and they realize he's going to die. We, we need to, to get Jesus. And so they, they gather someone. They gather the fastest person. He says, they say, Jesus is about two days away, but, but you've got to run. You, if you don't run and get there in time, then, then our brother is going to die. So again, let, let's put ourselves in their shoes, their desperation. And they send the runner, and the runner runs and he goes, so verse 3, so the sisters sent, him, sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. They sent the runner. They sent for Jesus. They said, they said, tell him, if he doesn't come back, he's going to die. You're our only hope in this moment, Jesus. And for three and a half years, for my mother and for my friend Lisa and for my friend Drew, we sent to Jesus. Every night as we gathered around our table, my daughter said, what should we pray for? Well, let's send to Jesus. Let's ask Jesus for for Grammy's sake. Every night when I tucked him in bed for three and a half years, what should we pray for? Let's send to Jesus. Let's ask Jesus, because we know that, that th- this is a terminal disease. The only hope we have is that if Jesus would come, and, and even in those last moments, we said, Jesus, we, we know you can, and so we know you're good, and we don't understand all that you're doing, but we're sending to you. Come, Jesus, please, come, come. We sent to Jesus. We see Jesus' response, verse 6. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill... He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He stayed. He didn't come. I imagine the, the runner comes to Jesus and he's like, thanks for that information. And the runner's like, but your friend... <laughs> he." And he just begins teaching again, and the, the runner goes back, and you've got Mary and Martha, they're waiting, they're longing, they're looking out the window, they're like, It's Jesus coming? I don't see him yet. How's Lazarus doing? Is Jesus coming? No. Uh, someone's on the horizon. Is that him? No, no, it's the runner, though. Maybe, maybe he's got news, and, and he's coming, and he's like, I don't see Jesus. And, and the runner comes and says, he says he's not coming. I'm like, what? But, but it's Jesus. We're, we're tight. Like, we're not just the crowds. It's Jesus. Why, why isn't he coming? I don't know. He, he's, he just kept teaching. Well, why didn't he come? Well, well, we begin to get a, a clue to it uh, in the verse above, verse 5. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. That's, that's, a, crazy, that's a crazy connection. Apparently, the reason Jesus stayed for two more days, the reason Jesus waited until Lazarus died, was out of, born out of his love. And we have a hard time having a a category for this in our mind. We sin to Jesus. We expect Jesus to deliver. And when he doesn't answer or come in the way we think, we think maybe he doesn't hear. We we doubt our faith. But but this is saying it's born out of his love for. He was loving Martha. He was loving Mary. And he was loving Lazarus. In fact, if you look up one more verse, uh, verse 4, it says, but when Jesus heard... It, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. God's priorities and our priorities are not always the same. Uh, apparently, it was of more worth uh, both for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and for Jesus, for them to see the all satisfying nature and supremacy of Jesus and not be healed and for God's glory to go forth than for his comfort, his health, his security. God's got different priorities. He says, look, there's something bigger going on here than just Lazarus' life. So seeing Jesus as the all-satisfying treasure that he is and bringing glory to God is of greater worth than healing my mom, than healing Drew, than healing Lisa well, let's drop down. The story continues. And after Jesus knows that Lazarus has died, he says to his disciples, hey, let's go. And they're like, "Uh, that's near Jerusalem. We just barely escaped with our lives from Jerusalem. If we go there, they're going to kill you, Jesus. And he says, look, I've got work to do. We're going to go. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. And I love the disciples. They're always confused because I'm always confused. I can relate with them a lot. And so they're like, oh, well, if he's asleep and he's sick, he's going to to get better. And he's like, um oh, guys, he's, di- he's dead. He's dead. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, they're like, uh, oh, he's like, but don't worry. I got it under control. And then Thomas is like, uh, oh. Well, if we go there, we're going to die, but okay, let's go, let's die. So they think they're going to their death, and so that they begin to head down that way. And as they get a couple miles outside of Bethany, word comes to the sisters now who have been mourning for four days. Jesus never showed up. He didn't show up in the way that they thought. They thought, well, God, God is never early. He's always on time. And in this case, they're like, no, He wasn't even on time. There's no evidence that God's at work in this, that they're devastated and they're mourning. And Martha gets up and she heads out to Jesus. In verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So, so she is, granted it's only four days, but she is doing something that is, is common in our lives, that, that there was some hurt, some pain, some loss, some suffering, something in your past that, that, that you just can't get over. And she's living in the past. If if you had shown up, if you had done this, if you had been there then, then everything would have worked out, but you didn't show up, you didn't do what we thought you would do, and and therefore, I, I can't get past that. And maybe that's why you haven't been able to progress in your faith, because you thought God would have shown up, and he didn't show up, and it was painful, and there was loss, and there was suffering. And then verse 22, she says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And that sounds right. And that sounds good. And that sounds like the trite Christian answer. That's bumper sticker theology. That's, uh, Jesus is the bread of life. He'll never grow stale. That's, uh, that's internet mims. That's uh, Twitter and Instagram. Just kind of, maybe you share these things and, and these little uh, trite little verses or, and they're about an inch deep and, and you're like, well, this is what we're supposed to say. That's Sunday school theology where every answer is Jesus, but it hasn't gone into her heart. And we'll see why it hasn't gone into her heart later. But she gives she gets the right answer and I don't think it's because she really believed it yet. Verse 23, but Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. So she's stuck in the past, and now she looks way, 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 way into the future. Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she's like, I'm living in the past. I can't get over that. And I, I know my theology tells me enough that a day is coming when he'll rise again. Yes, I believe that. And then at this moment, Jesus, I believe, just grabs her attention, maybe looks her in the eye, connects with her. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am, I am, present tense, the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me now, present tense, though he die, yet shall he live. He's saying, look. It's not about your past and it's not about your future, though the Bible tells us to not ignore the past and, and certainly to long for the future. Jesus is saying to someone that, that is just shell-shocked in the moment, he's saying, look at me, look at me, Martha. I am right now the resurrection and the life. Right now you can experience my presence and my power and my peace in your life right now. Not, not in the past, not in the future, but right now. Verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Martha, do you believe this? It's an invitation to believe. It's why we call this series Believe. It is the central word of the series. Uh, Do you believe this? Do you trust me in this? Uh, Are you going to hold on to me right now? Do you believe this, that I am the resurrection and the life? It was a question to Martha and it was a question to all who would ever read this. It's a question to us. Do you believe this, that for those God loves and are called according to his purposes, he works out all things together for good. And he's confronting her. And, and they, they go on and, and they begin to work their way closer and closer to the city and closer and closer to where the tomb is. And finally, Mary gets up from her weeping and she heads out of the, of the mornings and they think they're gonna, she's going to go visit the body, but she heads to Jesus verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, "Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died." Same exact words of her sister. They they probably said this a, a thousand times to each other over the last 4 days. If Jesus had been here, he wouldn't have died. God, I blame you. <laughs> I blame you because things don't seem to be working out how I would have them work out. And so if you had been here, then my brother would not have died. But notice Jesus' response here. When Jesus saw her, and in my Bible, I underlined the word saw her. When Jesus saw her weeping, it, it tells me something very significant here, that, that Jesus, the the. the Eternal God of the universe, who is working at all things and stands outside of time, is yet not a God who stands far off, but a God who comes and is present and sees. He sees her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, think about this Jesus knows what he's doing. He said already, this is not going to end in death. Like, Like this is for the glory of God. And you roll into town and you're about to do your most amazing miracle besides raising your own life from the dead. The the most profound moment is about to happen in his ministry. He knows what's going to happen. There's going to be great rejoicing. There's going to be great joy. Why didn't he just roll in there and say, hey, 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 stop, stop, stop. I've got this. I'm going to handle this. I'm going to bring him back from the dead because that's what he does. That's, That's what he's going to do. And ultimately... That's what he's going to do for all of creation. And if he stands outside of time and eternity, like he could just say, like, Qu- quit crying, like, quit weeping. It's all going to be good. Don't worry about it. But that's not what he does. Even though he knows just moments from now he's going to make everything better, he is deeply moved. He is greatly distressed. He enters into our pain and into our suffering. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, Lord, come see. Come and see. Verse 35. Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible, and it might be the most profound. The creator of the universe steps down from heaven and glory enters into a world full of pain and suffering sees the result of sin and suffering and sickness and death and he is moved greatly deeply by that and he weeps I believe in a sense that every time we, we sin for Jesus and every time you sin for Jesus and there's pain and there's suffering, Jesus isn't like, don't worry about it, just have more faith. He isn't cold or indifferent to that. He enters in far better than any of us could enter in in compassion and love. And he says, I feel that. I feel the brokenness of the world. I, it, it moves my soul. He wept, verse 36, and Jesus So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Drop down to verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Now, this is where I'm going to show you that I don't think Martha yet really understood that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, present tense. Look at her response. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord... By this time, there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. If you have the King James Version, it says, surely it will stinketh. (laughs) Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Remove the stone. And she's like, no, 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 you can't do that. It's going to smell terrible. He's been gone four days. Hot Palestinian sun. It's going to be nasty. Why are you? Don't do that. And, and, And I love Jesus' patience with our unbelief. Because we all have unbelief, and and once again we see it. He doesn't. When, when Martha says that, he isn't like uh, try to do something nice for you, and, this, and forget it. I'm done with you people. This is why we can't have nice things. I'm out of here. <laughs> like he doesn't he doesn't do that. What does he do? He's like mm. verse uh, forty. Jesus said to her, "Did I not tell you that if you believed present tense, you would see." One commentator said, the reason he called Lazarus by name, because if he would have just said, come out, all of them would have come out of the tombs. So he says, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. That's just just an amazing sentence in the Bible right there. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So you you might be thinking, okay, I I see the parallels with your mom and Lisa and and Drew and and you you sent for Jesus and Jesus didn't come. And maybe I could see it where you're saying Jesus was uh, was loving you through that whole time. But this apparently is where the stories diverge. Apparently, Jesus shows up for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, but not for you, Mark, and not for Mike and his wife, Lisa, not for Drew and his wife, Cassandra. Uh, They are just dead. And so uh, tell me about how... How this it parallels this. It looks like Lazarus got the better end of the deal. And, and I'm not going to lie, I, I would love to have my mom come back and, and spend some time with her and, and enjoy some meals with her. But I'm, I, I'm just saying, if you think about this for just a moment, I'm not so sure Lazarus got the best end of the deal. For four days now, he had crossed over from this life to the next. He had faced the last enemy of death, and he was in paradise. There was no more pain. There was no more writhing. There was no more fever. There was no more vomiting. And for four days, he's just uh, in paradise, enjoying all that there is on that side of eternity. And then all of a sudden, he hears his name, Lazarus, come out. And he's like, oh, are you serious? And so he comes out, and once again he steps into a world of pain, of suffering, of sin, and eventually of death again. In fact, in the next chapter, it's going to one of the paragraph headings. It says the plot to kill Lazarus. It's like already, they want to take this guy out because he is the biggest threat to the religious authorities. He is the biggest symbol and sign that Jesus is who he says he is. And so they say, we got to take that guy out. Got to take that guy out. I do know this, Mike. I mean, Lisa and Drew and my mom—they never have to enter into a world of sickness, suffering again. They don't have to have a breathing tube. They don't have to have a wheelchair. They don't have to have any of those things that were symbols of their suffering. But when you when you give funerals over someone who has suffered for a very long time, and there's pain there's depression, and there's all these things. The, the, what's hanging over the air in, in that room is the question, why? Why would a good God allow this to happen? It's the problem of pain. And uh, philosophers and theologians and every religion in the world tries to answer that question. Why is there pain and suffering in the world? And the Bible doesn't just come out and answer it. I mean, there is a lot to it. I mean, the whole thing is an answer to it. But I think the greatest answer to that question of the problem of pain is seen in this passage and is going to be unfolded over the next several uh, chapters and to the end of the book. Even in this passage, you see the very next chapter heading, the plot to kill Jesus. The Bible's response to the problem of pain is not that God stands far off. It is that Jesus sees it. He is he is moved by it and he, he leaves heaven in glory and he steps into our planet and puts on flesh in the incarnation. And he is born to a penniless mother and father. And he knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be a refugee in North Africa. He knows what it's like to, to come back out of that. He knows what it's like to be scorned by a community that thinks that he is uh, of a, a questionable uh, heritage. He knows all those things. He knows loneliness. He knows betrayal. All of his friends would abandon him in the moment he needs them most. One of them would come up and with a kiss betray him. So God doesn't stand far off from pain. He begins to enter it. He's moved by it, and he comes, and, and then he's betrayed with a kiss, and he, he's taken to a, a mockery of, of a trial. He, he experiences injustice, and he's beaten, and he has the, the thorns throw, shoved on his head, and, and he has a, a whip fillet lay his back open, and he's mocked as a false king. Finally, they lay him down and they give him a a cross and say, take it to the place of your execution. And he he carries it up the the hill to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And then they lay him on his back. And with thick seven-inch iron spikes, they, they drive it through each forearm and one through the ankles. And then they hang him on the cross. And for several hours, God's answer to the problem of pain is that he would embrace it. He would take it, and, and for several hours, he would experience joint-wrenching pain and asphyxiation, because the way you die on the cross isn't by just sitting there. The way you die is the body collapses in on itself, and you can't get breath, and so you've got to push up off of your ankles and grab a breath of air, and you do this for hour after hour until you die. It's so awful that we had to invent a word from it, from the Latin, ex out of crusade, cross, excruciating pain he experienced on the cross. And yet, that is not nearly what he experienced in the spiritual dimension. For on the cross, the Bible tells us God's answer to the problem of pain. That because sin has entered in the world, our, our universe has been fractured, our rebellion to God demands righteous wrath. We read about it in our catechism. And the righteous wrath of God is poured out on Jesus in our place for our sin. He lived a life you and I could never live and paid a price you and I could never pay. And on the cross, he bore the weight of all the sin of the world. And So my mom's biggest problem in life was not her ALS. My mom's biggest problem was resolved when she was 40 years old. And by grace through faith, she trusted in Jesus. She became, what the Bible says, a new creation. She began a new life with him in that moment. uh, All of her sins were forgiven, but the news is even better than that. It says on the cross that not only did he take our sin and our shame, he gave us his righteousness he became sin who, be, who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And so she is now credited with the righteousness of God. And so she can enter in with full confidence and full assurance that she is not only forgiven, but she stands holy, perfect, and complete because of what Jesus has done on the cross. That's God's answer to the problem of pain. When we were doing the uh, funeral for my mom, it was my first funeral, um, so I, I didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, just like my first wedding was my sister's, so my family's kind of a guinea pig for ministry. But um, my sister and I were gathered, and we were we were talking about we were gathering pictures and and what songs are we gonna play. And uh, we, we she loved that song. we just sang, Ten Thousand Reasons. She loved especially the last stanza. And on that day, when my strength is failing, um, and she that just kind of became an anchor for her soul in those moments. And uh, she she loved another song. She loved uh, I Can Only Imagine, you know, that song, I Can Only Imagine. And it's just kind of, it just stirs your imagination for what it'll be like when you cross over from this life to the next. And as we were picking the songs, we said, we're not going to play that song. And some people said, well, why wouldn't you play that song? That was like one of her favorite songs. I said, well, because it doesn't apply to her anymore. She doesn't have to imagine anymore. That song's good for us, but it's not good for her. But I would like us to just imagine for a moment, and maybe you have a a loved one or someone who has trusted in Christ that you know before that you you can uh, kind of put in this picture. But just for, for our sake, I just imagine that day, January 22nd, 9.22 p.m., 2013. My mom was taking labored breaths, heart rate over 120, We knew the end was coming near, so the nurses were sitting there, and they're watching, and they watch her chest rise and fall, rise a little bit shallower, and fall, and not rise again. And in that moment... I don't, have a, I don't have a scripture on this. I don't have a word from the Lord. I'm just saying let's use our imagination for a moment. In that moment, just imagine what happened in, in her life in that moment as her, her chest rise and fell and did not rise again. I just imagine breath and life and, and no more pain. And I imagine that Jesus is standing there, and she sees the face of her Savior, and she sees the face of her creator. But, but in this case, uh, maybe it'll be different for you, and maybe uh, for each of us, but in this case, Jesus isn't just right there. He's, kind of, he's like 20, 30, maybe 20 yards away, we'll say. We'll say he's 20 yards away, and he's standing there with a smile. And then with arms wide open, with holes in his arms as an everlasting symbol of his love for her, he says, welcome, and she gets up, and she's got strength in her legs, and she runs at Jesus. I just imagine this, and she launches herself at Jesus like, a, like Von Miller at a quarterback, and she just hits Jesus, but he can take the hit, and he just takes that hit, and he grabs her and hugs her, and then that voice that spoke the universe into existence, that voice that called her by name to follow him, that voice says, well done, good and faithful servant. And then, I just imagine, they ran. They ran. And they might still be running. So, where does that leave us? The invitation is true for all of us. No matter where you're at on the faith spectrum, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Maybe you've never confessed faith. Maybe you've never turned from your sins and given them to Jesus and trusted in him. That'd be an amazing thing. The Bible says you can become a new creation today. The old will be gone and the new come, and you will become, begin a new life with him. And forever and ever, everything will be different. That's the invitation to you. But maybe you've done that, and you're on that journey. But the invitation is the same. For us to drive this deep into our hearts to believe that not, not, not just in the past, but not in the future, but right now, he is the resurrection and the life. And he's asking you and he's asking us, do you believe this? To that end, let me pray for us, and then we'll come to this communion table. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for the truth of it. Lord, I, I can't even imagine... Uh, what, what that day is going to be like. Lord, I, I pray, especially for those uh, that have just deep, deep, deep wounds from their past, loved ones, abandonment, pain, suffering. I pray, Lord, that they would hear through your word today and hear even right now through this song and through this communion table, uh, your great love for them, that you've entered in, you see it, you weep with them when they weep. And you rejoice with us when you rejoice. Lord, as a church, I pray that uh, the truth of Romans eight twenty eight would go deep into our hearts. That no matter what happens to us, if we are in Christ, it is for our good and ultimately for your glory. Lord, let us be a church that knows that and lives like that. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.